North Korea's head of state, Kim Jong-un, is in Russia meeting with Vladimir Putin. And Venezuela's head of state, Nicolas Maduro, is in China meeting with Xi Jinping. Today, we're talking about the dramatic changes taking place in global politics. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we're talking with investigative journalist Ben Norton. He works with the website Geopolitical Economy Report, which you can find at geopoliticaleconomy.com. Ben Norton, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Brian. It's a pleasure. Big news today. I mean, you we knew for you know the last few weeks because of rampant speculation in the US media that Putin and Kim Jong-un were going to meet, as if that would be like some terrible, menacing event. Of course, the two countries share a border. Russia borders North Korea, as does China. But now that Putin is meeting with Kim Jong-un in Russia, we learn that Maduro is meeting with Xi Jinping. And Xi Jinping announced in a very dramatic statement that Venezuela-China relations have been elevated to a strategic partnership. But let's start with the, the meeting with Putin and Kim Jong-un. I want to get your take, its significance. And here we have a clip, I think, of the two of them meeting. And by the way, Kim Jong-un's statement is very straightforward. He's saying, you won't be able to hear this on the clip, but he's saying, we support Russia. We support Russia's efforts to fight against the hegemonism of imperialism. We stand with Russia against imperialism. Very militant statements. And of course, North Korea was one of the seven countries at the UN that voted no on the US-sponsored resolution condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Anyway, your take. Yeah, I think this is very important for a variety of reasons. One, the short-term response here is clearly that this is a direct message to the United States after US President Biden just met with the leaders of South Korea and Japan. And we should keep in mind that the current leader of South Korea is known, referred to in the Korean media as K-Trump. He has modeled his political career after Trump, Yoon Suk-yeol. And he has tried to push Korean politics very far to the right after the previous president, Moon Jae-in, tried to pursue peace with the North. And the, there was an attempt that came very close to finally achieving peace on the Korean peninsula, which has been militarily occupied by the United States since 19, early 1950s. The United States killed around 3 million Koreans in a brutal war, and the U.S. destroyed about 80 percent of all of the buildings through its bombing campaign in the northern part of Korea. So this is a peninsula that has been essentially at war since the 1950s, the South militarily occupied by the United States. And Joe Biden, who you know claims to be a force for progress in the world and, and criticizes Donald Trump rightfully, well, he has no problem allying with Donald Trump-like figures in other countries like South Korea, 
And of course, Japan has essentially been a one-party state since the 1950s as well, ruled by the so-called Liberal Democratic Party, which is also a very right-wing party. And Fumio Kishida, the prime minister, likewise shares many of these extreme views, including Japan is pushing toward remilitarizing, writing the history of Japanese fascism in World War II. In fact, the Japanese government on its official Twitter account recently posted this ridiculous propaganda saying that brave Japanese soldiers died fighting in faraway lands to defend our our motherland in World War II, whitewashing the genocidal atrocities that Japan committed in collaboration with Nazi Germany. So we see that the United States is very clearly trying to form this kind of cordon sanitaire around China economically, politically, and militarily. The United States has formed multiple military alliances, not only with Japan and South Korea, but the United States also is working closely with a new government in the Philippines, led by Bongbong Marcos, the son of the longtime U.S.-backed dictator Ferdinand Marcos. And what we now see is that the United States is trying to put offensive missile systems, not defensive, offensive missile systems aimed at mainland China on the so-called first island chain surrounding China and Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, these countries play a key role in this military strategy. So immediately, I think the first thing to point out is that by meeting with the leader of the DPRK, the official name of North Korea, Russia is signaling not only that it's not going to abide by the Western sanctions on the DPRK, but furthermore, that Russia is interested in military collaboration with this country, whereas the United States is forming this military alliance with Japan and South Korea, Russia and China are likely going to have military exercises with the DPRK, and Russia and China have also recently held military exercises with Iran. So this is responsive to the aggressive threats by the United States in the region, which is further militarizing the region. But another key point, is simply Russia diplomatically is stating on the international stage that they're not going to abide by this Western, you know, arrogant imperialist idea that some countries are persona non grata and you're not allowed to have any relations with them. You mentioned, Brian, that the DPRK is a country that shares a border with Russia. It also shares a border with China. And we see that China DPRK relations have been improving as well. So the United States especially in the 1990s and the 2000s at the peak of its kind of imperial power, essentially tried to say that countries around the world cannot have relations with other independent sovereign states like the DPRK, like Eritrea, like Iran, like Cuba. And increasingly, many countries are saying this is absolutely absurd. We are not going to abide by this policy of blockade which is really a form of collective punishment against the entire North Korean population. You know, people love to make up crazy propaganda about how, you know, supposedly evil the DPRK government is. Well, regardless of what you think about the government, the point is that tens of millions of people are suffering under what is essentially a blockade. They've been under a blockade for decades, and that has made their lives more and more difficult. So it's good to see that larger countries like Russia and China are now actually opposing this blockade, which unfortunately very few countries were willing to do until recently. This represents or continues a trend of a new day in global politics. And I want to help the audience just understand some of the historical context. And you brought some of that into your initial comment, Ben. Putin met with Kim Jong-un in 2019. So that was four years ago. But Russia 
and when it was the anchoring republic of the USSR, the Soviet Union, had very, very close relations with the DPRK. When the Soviet Union occupied the northern half of the Korean Peninsula as part of a, a post-World War II agreement between the United States and the Soviet Union when they were allies, there was a decision that North Korea would be occupied. All of Korea had been occupied by Japan, but northern part of Korea would be occupied by Soviet troops, and the U.S. would occupy the southern half of the country under the 38th parallel, a relatively arbitrary decision. Both sides agreed that they would leave in 1948, and both sides, in fact, did leave. And then in 1950, the Korean War started, and the United States invaded Korea, along with 25 other nations from the United Nations. And over the next three years, as you said, millions of Koreans died. The main complaint of U.S. pilots was that there was nothing left to bomb because they had destroyed everything, and they kept bombing for another two years. And during that time, China sent like a million people to fight on the side of North Korea. That's why North Korea could persevere. But behind the scenes, Russia, the Soviet Union, was sending lots of military aid. They couldn't have done it without Soviet military aid. So the DPRK, North Korea, China, and the Soviet Union were communist-led countries, a socialist bloc at that time. They worked together. There was a division of labor, but they were coordinating. And then after the Soviet Union was overthrown, after the Soviet government was toppled in 1991, basically Russia, and I would say the same thing was happening with China, abandoned their strategic relationship with North Korea. They didn't break. It wasn't broken. But that level of solidarity between those two big countries and North Korea was basically broken. Then in 2002, on January 29th, George W. Bush, in his State of the Union address, said that there's an axis of evil in the world, Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. And everybody knew at that time that the U.S. was preparing to invade Iraq. So the North Koreans were thinking, okay, Russia has basically not, no longer supporting us in the way they used to. China is pretty lukewarm because China's main goal at that time was to integrate into the world economy and to be the friend of the United States. So we can't really count on them. The Bush administration is about to invade Iraq. Bush is saying, we're like Iraq, so we're obviously going to be invaded next. And it was at that moment that the North Koreans left the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and began building nuclear weapons because North Korea said, we won't be like Iraq. We won't disarm as Iraq had been compelled to do we won't disarm. In fact, we're going to get more arms. We're going to get nuclear arms because if you think, you, the United States, think you can invade or bomb us or destroy us, we can hit back. And so they developed nuclear weapons. They became a nuclear power. They developed missiles, long-range missiles at this point. And during that entire next 15 years, Russia and China supported the United States at the Security Council at imposing sanctions on North Korea because Russia was basically appeasing the United States and so was China. But here we are in 2023, instead of that you know, era of appeasement before what appeared to be a unipolar power of the United States, the hegemony of the United States, everything is shifting back. It's a really dramatic 
reversal in global politics. Go ahead. Yeah, and there's another key element here, Brian, that I've seen some uh, economists discuss, which is also plans for integrating North Korea into the Belt and Road Initiative, China's massive global infrastructure project. And North Korea is very geostrategically located with numerous ports that go out into the Sea of Japan, the East Sea. So there's discussions of expanding railroads so you can have the movement of goods from Russia and China to North Korea out into the sea. I mean, this is all part of what we're seeing is really the center of the global economy is moving back toward Eurasia. What we've really seen is in the past few hundred years with the rise of European colonialism is the emergence of this transatlantic imperial system in which so much trade goes over the Atlantic between Europe and the United States and many countries in Asia and Africa. They send their goods to Europe and then those goods are shipped across to the United States. What we're seeing now is part of this attempt to try to unify the continent of Eurasia economically to integrate it with infrastructure. And China, absolutely, when, when it comes to these strategies of trying to build infrastructure and develop economic connections, it's not thinking in just five years or even 10 years, it's thinking decades down. And clearly, the government of the DPRK is not going anywhere. I mean, the United States has tried decades after decades after decades to try to overthrow the government, essentially waging a kind of campaign of economic warfare or economic terrorism collectively against the entire civilian population. It hasn't worked. And, you know, Russia economically, it's a commodities powerhouse. It's one of the world's largest producers of oil and gas and certain minerals and wheat and fertilizer. But, you know, China is the core of the global economy. And by further integrating with countries like the DPRK, also with Iran, it is building this infrastructure in which you know, the, the United States is no longer even necessary in any of these global supply chains. They don't even necessarily need the U.S. market. And clearly the U.S. is trying to, to break off the Chinese market anyway. So what's really incredible is I think we should think of this in addition to what China has been doing recently with trying to bring Iran into the diplomatic fold in West Asian politics. Whereas, again, I mentioned that if you look at the US strategy toward the DPRK for decades, it's been trying to essentially say that this is a so-called pariah state, which, I mean, the United States is the world's worst pariah state if you actually look at international law. No other country on earth comes close to violating international law as much, as frequently, as severely as the United States. And another country that the US tried to pursue this policy against was Iran. You mentioned the so-called axis of evil speech, you know, Iran, the DPRK and Iraq. Well, China clearly was sending a message to the United States. They're not going to tolerate this attempt to say that state A is good and state B is bad by brokering a historic peace breakthrough between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And Iran recently joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. There's also been discussion of the DPRK eventually becoming a future member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So the reason I mention all of this is that thinking strategically, China and Russia, which coordinate very closely in a lot of these policies, can see clearly that their goal is unifying the region economically so they no longer need to rely on the West. And that's why China and Iran recently signed a historic agreement a 25-year agreement in which Iran provides its petroleum. And in return, 
China provides different goods and technical support and infrastructure development. I know today we wanted to talk about Venezuela, and I think Venezuela and China are also working on developing a similar partnership. So in the case of the DPRK, you know, there are actually discussions the DPRK has a lot of mineral reserves, but it's obviously it's about much more than simply minerals in the DPRK. It's, it's a much deeper partnership that these countries are looking to develop. But the point I wanted to stress is that the DPRK is an important country in Eurasia. It has an important geostrategic location. And it's a country whose government has politically shown again and again that it will not tolerate its complete subordination to Western capital. This is a country that absolutely is sovereign, has defended its sovereignty, unlike, unfortunately, the south of the country, which it would probably be in the economic interest of South Korea if it had a fully sovereign government to integrate economically with this project of Eurasian integration. But instead, it's a country that's still militarily occupied by the United States and has been since the 1950s. And its government continues to look to the United States and not to look to its own neighbors in Asia, which should be its natural allies. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned the issue of sovereignty because when Trump, you know, for his own reasons, met with Kim Jong-un both first in Singapore in 2018 and then in Hanoi in February 2019, and it looked like there might be the possibility of a peace agreement whereby the, the Korean War would finally come to an end. You know, the armistice that ended the the military side of the conflict on July 27, 1953, that armistice has never been replaced by a peace treaty. So technically, the, the countries are at war, and the U.S. continues to use that as a pretext to impose these draconian economic sanctions, not only on North Korea, but on countries that do business with North Korea. So that diminishes North Korea's ability to trade. And, you know, it's a country that is also trying to overcome the legacy of colonialism. It was dominated and colonized by Japan, brutalized by Japan. So many Koreans were basically taken to Japan to be essentially slave labor. 25% of the people who died in Hiroshima were Korean workers. You know, when you put all of that together, the people of Korea and the, and the DPRK, they've decided, they've decided that they're going to be sovereign. And the South Koreans couldn't do that. So Moon Jae-in, who was the president, the progressive president of South Korea, when he was meeting with Kim Jong-un and they were promoting peace talks between Kim Jong-un, North Korea, and Trump, he couldn't really say, yes, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have reconciliation with North Korea. Yes, we want to end the Korean War. The policy was decided in Washington. So when the peace talks were finally sabotaged on the second day of the Hanoi summit, it wasn't a South Korean governmental leader at that time, the president of South Korea, who said no. It was Donald Trump, backed up by John Bolton and these other hawks. So South Korea is like one of the biggest economies in the world. I think it's the 10th biggest economy in the world, but it's not sovereign. U.S. military forces actually have operational control in the moment of crisis. This is an agreement between U.S. and South Korea that should there be a military crisis, South Korea's military is under the command of the Pentagon. So, you know, when you think about Korea as a country, I mean, if Korea was united, it would be a powerhouse. Both North and South Korea, very educated Obviously, it would be like an economic, political powerhouse, not just in Asia, but globally. I think it would be a rival or able to surpass Japan. 
but it's a divided country. The U.S. doesn't want to end the division. The U.S. wants to continue to occupy South Korea. And the South Korean government, even a left progressive government like Moon Jae-in was the, before the current government, which is right wing, as you said, they don't really have sovereignty. That's absolutely right. And I, I think another really important point to keep in mind is to look at the political economy of South Korea itself and the very lopsided, uneven development that we've seen. You know, South Korea is often singled out as one of the great Asian tigers. And the narrative by Western neoliberals is that the way South Korea developed so rapidly is through, you know, a free market and a great liberal society. And no, actually, South Korea was a military dictatorship until very recently, until just a few decades ago. And it was a very brutal military dictatorship that did not allow labor unions to operate, that brutally repressed labor. And it developed through massive state intervention in the economy and essentially an oligarchic system. In fact, nearly two thirds, over 60% of Korea's entire economy, its GDP, it comes from 10 what are known as chaebols, which are family run corporate monopolies. And, you know, there's certain big companies like Samsung and LG that are these massive Korean corporate giants that everyone around the world recognizes. And they represent such a massive part of the Korean economy that they have significant political power. And again, these chaebols are actually run by families. They're like family dynasties. So it shows that South Korea, even today with the facade of being a liberal democracy, it really is just a complete oligarchy in which a small handful of capitalist oligarchs have significant political influence and they work hand in glove with the United States. And another way that, that South Korea was able to develop is essentially this parasitic relationship where, I mean, the United States is the parasite, of course, but the U.S. essentially uses South Korea as this bastion. Michael Hudson has shown this in his book, Super Imperialism, how, you know, South Korea, through exploiting labor brutally in South Korea and through a massive manufacturing sector, it creates this massive, with through all these exports, it creates this massive inflow of foreign exchange with this massive current account trade trade surplus. And where does all that money go? It flows back into the U.S. financial system because the South Korean government, which is completely dependent on the United States and occupied by the United States, it invests all of that money in U.S. government securities and treasury securities and therefore finances the very same military occupation of the country. So again, it's this kind of circular relationship where South Korea plays an integral role in U.S. military strategy trying to, you know, basically surround China and has done so since the 1950s with tens of thousands of U.S. troops, 26,000 troops who are still there. And I mean, that number has fluctuated over the years. And economically, it also plays an important role in the global capitalist system, you know, centered in Wall Street. And it's not the South Korean people who benefit from that. So if South Korea were able to be more sovereign, to kick out the military occupiers, to integrate economically with other countries in Asia with its massive manufacturing capabilities, with its massive economic potential, were to reunify with the North, I mean, this would be a major global power. And obviously, I think there would be a lot of room for improving the living standards of Korean workers as well, who I should stress again, are South Korea is notorious for being a country where workers are brutally exploited. And, and we can see this reflected in popular culture and things like Squid Game and movies like Parasite from these Korean filmmakers. And they, they show, you know, they provide this kind of cinematic look at the crises of debt 
and depression and suicide, rampant suicide in, in South Korea, because so many people, they just feel economically that they have no way out. Yeah, very, very important. I want to turn now to the trip to China by Nicolas Maduro, head of state of Venezuela. Here's what Xi Jinping's statement about Maduro's trip. I'm not going to read the very first words of it, but he basically says, look, this is your fifth trip here. He says, Venezuela and China are worthy friends. I want, to, I want the audience to actually hear these words, Ben, and then let you do the diplomatic interpretation because diplomatic language is its own thing. And so if people aren't used to diplomatic language, they might not know what it is. Venezuela and China are worthy friends, says Xi Jinping, and partners in mutual development. China has always viewed its relationship with Venezuela from a strategic and long-term perspective. We will continue to firmly support Venezuela's efforts to uphold its national sovereignty, national dignity, and social stability. Here's the next line. We resolutely support Venezuela's just cause against external interference. I am delighted to jointly announce with you the elevation of China-Venezuela relations to a comprehensive strategic partnership. Now, this is the comprehensive all-weather strategic partnership. China has that currently with Pakistan. Now it has it with Pakistan and with Venezuela. And you have other sort of strategic partnerships in the lexicon or vernacular of Chinese diplomacy. One is the Mutual Defense Treaty. That's with DPRK. I think that's the only mutual defense treaty. And then, of course, there's the New Era Comprehensive Strategic Partnership that China has forged in the recent period with Russia. So when you think about Venezuela, Ben, and you you were in Latin America for a long time, and you and I have talked about Venezuela. I was deeply involved in the Venezuela Embassy Protection Collective when the U.S. basically seized the Venezuelan embassy. We were in the embassy for many, many weeks saying this is a violation of the Vienna Convention. The U.S. doesn't have the right to seize other governments' diplomatic compounds, that these compounds are inviolable. But that was happening at the same time that the U.S. says, well, you know, Maduro's no longer president of Venezuela. Juan Guaido is the new president, even though he never ran for president. The U.S. just said, well, he's the president. Britain seized the assets of Venezuela. I mean, they stole, they just took like more than a billion dollars of Venezuelan gold. They just seized it, like old-style colonial seizures. It looked like Venezuela was really maybe on its last legs. And yet Venezuela persevered for a lot of different reasons. One is the government does have a considerable base of support. The Bolivarian Revolution has roots. Also, the opposition was divided. But it looked like Venezuela was pretty isolated because all of the imperialists joined with the United States in this effort to crush Venezuela. Now you have, in 2023, just four years later, Maduro in China, and China says, look, we resolutely support your effort to avoid foreign interference, and we are now entering into a strategic partnership I mean, what does this mean for Venezuela? And what might it mean for Latin America, which doesn't want to be America's backyard, doesn't want to be the victim of American sanctions? Just let's talk about this as a potential, at least. 
Yeah, this is very important. I, I would say historic. And first I'll say, before I look at the official statement from President Xi, that in the past 20 years, Latin American-China relations have completely shifted. Really, at the beginning of the 2000s, China did not have close diplomatic relations with many countries in Latin America, and trade was very minimal. In fact, of all of the regions of the world that still maintain diplomatic relations with separatists on Taiwan, most of those countries were in Latin America. And in the past two decades, we've seen gradually more and more countries in the region recognize the People's Republic of China, break off diplomatic relations with Taipei. And especially in the past few years in Central America, we saw first Costa Rica, and then El Salvador, and then Nicaragua, and now just recently Honduras, which has a new left-wing government. And there's talk of Guatemala being the next one. So the United States has pressured a lot of these countries in Latin America to maintain diplomatic relations with separatists on Taiwan. And even though the United States formally recognizes that Taiwan is being part of the People's Republic of China, and in 1972, when Richard Nixon visited China and the United States signed the beginning of the three communiques, the diplomatic agreements that formalized U.S.-Chinese ties, the U.S. recognized formally that Taiwan is a province of the People's Republic of China. So the U.S. has always maintained this policy of strategic ambiguity and has used Latin America and the Caribbean, pressuring these countries to recognize Taiwan separatists. And still today, there are only 13 countries on Earth that have a collective population of 0.5% of the global population. They're very small countries that recognize the separatists on Taiwan as a separate government. And over half of them are in Latin America and the Caribbean still. I mentioned Guatemala, also several Caribbean nations, including Haiti, a country that the U.S. is trying to militarily occupy using other countries as front. But anyway, so the reason I mentioned that is because what we saw is a less known element of the so-called pink tide, the wave of progressive governments in Latin America in the 2000s, is not only were many of these governments implementing socialistic policies, redistributive policies, nationalizing natural resources, expanding public health spending and education, but many of them were also economically integrating with China. And this is a part that's not as well known. So Hugo Chavez, for instance, the Venezuelan revolutionary leader who initiated the Bolivarian Revolution, he was one of the really the first leaders in Latin America who really closely allied with the People's Republic of China. Another figure who's even less known is Ecuador's president, Rafael Correa in Ecuador. He also formed a very close partnership with China. And what we saw in the past two decades is Chinese Latin American trade has exploded. And now there are multiple countries in Latin America who actually trade more with China than they trade with the United States, including the largest economy in the region, which is Brazil. Brazil's largest trade partner by far is China. And increasingly so. Brazil's President Lula recently took a historic trip to China and as an example of how important this partnership is, when Lula visited the United States, he visited for one day, less than one day, and he signed no agreements. When Lula visited China, he visited for four days and he signed more than a dozen agreements, nearly 20, including multiple trade deals, integration of agriculture, technology transfer, many different things. China and Brazil also recently announced that they're going to be trading without the dollar. 
that Brazil will buy Chinese goods using Chinese yuan and China will buy Brazilian goods using Brazilian real. So this region has become more and more closely integrated with China, which again is the world's, you know, the center of the global economy, the world's factory. China is responsible for nearly one third of global manufacturing. So while, whereas the U.S. economy and the neoliberal era has been financialized and consumed by, you know, financial capital on Wall Street, which is not productive by definition, it's parasitic. The U.S. has deindustrialized. A lot of those good manufacturing jobs were outsourced leaving the Rust Belt, a region that's been economically depressed with a lot of unemployment. China, on the other hand, is still manufacturing power and is working closely with Latin America. So I mentioned all of that to provide context for Venezuela's specific relationship. I mentioned that Hugo Chavez was really a pioneer in boosting Latin American relations with China. And of course, Venezuela's economy for over 100 years has been really a petrostate. I mean, this is a problem that goes back before Hugo Chavez was even born. The Venezuelan economy is very heavily reliant on oil exports. And China is the world's largest importer of oil. So there's a natural partnership there. I mentioned that China and Iran recently signed an agreement, a 25-year agreement. There's speculation that China and Venezuela may in the near future announce a similar agreement. So it's a strategic partnership that makes perfect sense. Now, when you throw in everything that you mentioned, Brian, in terms of the U.S. sanctions, the goal of the U.S. sanctions was, of course, to overthrow the Venezuelan government, fundamentally, regime change. But also, the goal of the United States was simply to prevent Venezuela's economy from functioning by preventing the government from being able to produce and export oil. And specifically, if you look at the sanctions that go back to Obama, they started under Obama, in 2015, the Obama White House absurdly claimed that Venezuela was a, an extraordinary threat to the national security of the United States. That was a way for Obama to impose sanctions without getting congressional approval, although Congress probably would have approved it anyway. So the U.S. began imposing these executive orders, and they drastically expanded under Trump. And most of these sanctions, until they became a full-on economic embargo, like, like the Cuba-style embargo, most of the sanctions were targeted at the Venezuelan oil sector. The U.S. was trying to collapse the Venezuelan economy by trying to prevent Venezuela from being able to export its oil and also trying to simply destroy the Venezuelan oil sector because the Venezuelan oil sector for 100 years has been dominant in the economy before even Hugo Chavez ever came to power. What that meant is that historically, the Venezuelan oil sector has relied on technology from the U.S. oil industry. And of course, you had U.S. oil corporations like Exxon, who were very active in exploiting Venezuela's oil resources. So what that meant is that when Hugo Chavez came to power, when he nationalized the oil, when he kicked out the foreign corporations, he was still using oil technology from U.S. companies and European companies. Venezuela did not produce its own oil drilling technology and refinery technology. This is, you know, very advanced technology. So what we've seen in the past few years, interestingly, is that Iran has actually provided a lot of this technology to Venezuela because Iran is another major oil manufacturer and Iran has been under sanctions since the revolution in 1979. So the sanctions have been very painful in Venezuela, but they have meant that Venezuela has become more and more sovereign. It's been slowly, slowly recuperating its oil sector, increasing oil production. And now with this new strategic partnership, I think very clearly China is saying 
that China and Venezuela are going to deepen their relations. They're probably going to have some agreement similar to the agreement that China signed with Iran. And it's also for China a way to maintain energy security. Because if you think of it from China's perspective, this is a country that is very heavily reliant on the import of fossil fuels. It is at breakneck speed moving toward green energy. In fact, China this year is on the path to install more solar panels than the United States has ever installed in its history. And last year, China did the exact same thing. So, I mean, China is leading the world in the green transition. While the U.S. talks about it, China is actually putting its money where its mouth is. But still, this is a national security issue for China. So by forming close relationships, not only is it politically, not only does it make perfect sense, you know, as socialist governments for China and Venezuela to form this relationship, but it also shows that China's thinking in the long term that China and Venezuela are going to mutually support each other And Venezuela needs a market for its oil because the U.S. has been trying to destroy its economy. And China needs a reliable energy partner who's not going to go along with the United States and try to cut off its oil supplies. So, I mean, I think looking in the near future, clearly, when you look at some of the agreements that were signed thus far. So, for instance, when Maduro originally arrived in China, he did not go to Beijing, which is the political capital. He went to Shenzhen, which is a technological hub. And a lot of the discussion, if you listen to Maduro's speeches, he's talking about Venezuela wants technology transfer. And this is a big talking point that a lot of countries in the global south that are working with China, they want China to help them develop technologically. China has moved up the the chain of technological development from very low value added production of, you know, things like basic electronics and toys. And now China is developing some of the most high tech goods in the world, including, you know, Huawei technology. So now that China has moved up in the technological production, many countries like Venezuela are also trying to develop their own industry. So I think this is something that is going to be very important in the years to come. And again, China is thinking strategically, not just in five years, but decades down the road. So important as a perspective, Ben. Thank you for that. It was interesting. Maduro held up a cell phone. It was a Huawei cell phone. He says, I have a Chinese phone and the U.S. can't surveil me with it. Quick note just on that. Go ahead. That was really funny. He said, yeah, I have a great Huawei phone. The U.S. can't list by me. But speaking of phones in Venezuela, Venezuela under Chavez experimented a lot with industrialization because Chavez recognized the importance of diversifying the economy because it's so heavily reliant on the oil sector. And under Chavez, the Venezuelan government did try to develop cell phones, actually. But unfortunately, it it was a very difficult process. I mean, it's very important to talk about the victories and the gains of the Venezuelan government. But we also have to understand that just because a socialist comes to power doesn't mean that he can fundamentally transform the economy that he inherited that was created over 100 years. And Venezuela does not have a lot of technological capabilities. So I think really what, you know, the failed experiment in trying to develop cell phones in Venezuela under Chavez, I think is something that a lot of people in Venezuela are thinking about today. And China is a natural partner. If they're going to try to develop industry in the future, obviously the U.S. is never going to allow them to do that. The U.S. wants countries in Latin America and the global south in general to simply export raw materials. It doesn't want them to industrialize and develop their own 
diversified economies. And China is clearly thinking in the long term of how it can work with countries in Latin America and, and, and Africa to actually develop an entirely new industrial supply chain that is not reliant on the United States. In a moment, Ben, I want to talk to you about U.S. military strategy towards China because the U.S. is getting ready for a war with China in the Pacific. I think the, the military thinking of the United States is if they can limit the confrontation to the Pacific, they can kind of contain China, disrupt trade with China, make China's ability to import energy more difficult, and that China won't dare escalate the war beyond a regional war because the U.S. has nuclear primacy. So it's kind of a, a playing chicken with nuclear war kind of strategy and putting enormous pressure on China. I want to talk to you about that in a minute, but first I want to go back to this a couple other things that you said that I think are really important. Here you had Obama declaring ridiculously that there was an extraordinary national security threat from Venezuela in 2015, again, using national security as a pretext to do something else. Venezuela wasn't threatening the United States. They wanted to impose sanctions. They could do it through the executive branch unilaterally, avoid Congress, just do it with the idea of subverting Venezuela's ability to become economically independent. That's the point that you made. And again, national security is a pretext. In the case of China, the U.S. is sort of asserting that every economic step forward that China makes is a national security threat. So under the pretext of national security, the U.S. is trying to stop China's economic advance by depriving China of being able to purchase advanced chips and other high technologies the U.S. has and Western countries have patent rights, intellectual property rights over some of the design. So again, national security as a pretext. And then there's the other issue of how the U.S. actually functions, which is a security threat to all the other countries in the world and arrogates to itself this kind of idea that it can be the modern day pirate. Here's a headline. U.S. seizes nearly 1 million barrels of Iranian oil bound for China. The U.S. just seizes it on the high seas. And what was the reason? What gave the United States the right to steal Iran's oil, seize it like the modern-day imperial pirates that they are? It's because the U.S. claimed that Iran was violating international sanctions— but the international sanctions were imposed unilaterally by the United States, depriving Iran of the right to trade. And the United States and other countries from the Security Council and Germany signed the nuclear deal with Iran back during the Obama administration. They were supposed to lift sanctions. Trump tore it up, tore up that, that agreement, said it was the worst agreement ever. And Biden, who's a Democrat, has not gone back to the agreement. And instead, under Biden, you have the United States seizing a million barrels of Iranian oil bound for China. I mean, if other countries did this, seizing huge, vast quantities of oil destined to come to the United States, purchased by U.S. companies, the U.S. would say, well, that's an act of war. That's absolutely right. I mean, this narrative that the United States government uses is so absurd. People should think about this for a second. 
The sanctions that, that Washington imposes on most countries, pretty much all, are illegal according to international law. They're officially known as unilateral coercive measures. According to international law, if you want to impose sanctions on a country, you have to do so with the approval of the United Nations Security Council. So if you don't have UN approval, they're unilateral, they're illegal. The United States unilaterally, that is illegally, imposes sanctions on countries like Iran or China or Venezuela. And then the United States says that if that country trades with another country, not with the United States, but with another country, that country is violating the sanctions that it imposed as if that should matter, as if those sanctions are abiding by international law. They're not. The United States doesn't create international law. That's why Washington is actually trying to replace international law with the so-called rules-based international order in which the United States makes the rules and orders everyone around. But that's not how actual international law works. So we, this is an example here of sheer piracy. This is not the first time. The United States repeatedly has stolen oil from Iranian tankers that are being sent to third parties. Furthermore, you mentioned that, that the United States has stolen the foreign exchange reserves of the Iranian Central Bank, of the Venezuelan Central Bank, of the Afghan Central Bank, which is fueling a mass hyperinflation crisis and could lead to a famine in Afghanistan. And of course, the United States recently and Europe stole $300 billion in euros of assets part of the Russian Central Bank. That is money that belongs to the Russian people and the West simply stole it. And that's a significant reason, by the way, why many countries in the global South around the world are seeking alternatives now to the US dollar, including longtime US allies like Saudi Arabia and Egypt. They're actually seeking alternatives because they recognize that if they do something that upsets Washington, the United States may simply try to steal the foreign exchange reserves that they hold in dollars or euro-denominated assets. So this is, I mean, calling it even piracy, which is accurate, is I think even in some ways just downplaying. I mean, no pirate, Blackbeard or whoever, could ever imagine being this much of a massive international criminal. I mean, no criminal in human history has been able to exercise this kind of extraterritorial criminality. It reminds me, you know, Smedley Butler, who was a U.S. Marine general, the, the highest decorated military officer of his day. He famously, he became a socialist and an anti-imperialist. He, he wrote a, a pamphlet about how war is a racket. And he said famously in War is a Racket that, you know, people talk about gangsters, you know, who operated in, in a few neighborhoods. Well, I was, a, he said, I was a racketeer for capital. I was the biggest gangster ever seen. I operated on three continents. Al Capone operated in three states. I operated in three continents. Well, here we're talking about more than three continents. We're saying the U.S. is the racketeer, the gangster, the pirate that says that its law supposedly applies to every inch of the planet. And by the way, we're, we're speaking of, you know, Iran trying to sell oil to China and being seized by the United States. And this is, again, by the way, if you're in Beijing, you can bet that a lot of policymakers are now thinking once again about the national security issue of energy imports. But furthermore, speaking of the U.S. trying to apply its sanctions extraterritorially, we saw another example of this recently. So the United States imposes illegal sanctions on Chinese firms trying to prevent China 
from importing numerous forms of technology, including advanced semiconductors, quantum computing parts, and AI technology. And specifically, the United States has sanctioned two, well, many different Chinese companies, but two primarily technology companies involved in semiconductors and phone production, which is Huawei and SMIC, which is Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corporation. SMIC is a state-owned company in China, and Huawei was founded by a PLA military officer, which is closely linked to the government. So recently, Huawei announced that it has created this very advanced phone, which is called the Mate 60 Pro, which includes very advanced Kirin 9000 chips, which include seven nanometer semiconductors. Now, the United States was trying to prevent China from getting access to 12 nanometer semiconductors. Well, now it has seven nanometer semiconductors. Just in the span of a few years, China has been able to overcome these U.S. sanctions, which again are illegal. And in response to this, the United States has formally accused China of violating sanctions. The U.S. doesn't say what the sanctions are, but the U.S. and international trade organizations is formally accusing China of violating sanctions because China's state-owned semiconductor company gave the Chinese company Huawei its technology. So once again, I mean, this is, this is absolutely insane. The United States is accusing China on the international stage of violating sanctions, not mentioning that those sanctions are illegal, unilateral U.S. sanctions. And the U.S. is accusing China of violating sanctions because a Chinese company traded with a Chinese company. <laughs> so quite literally, Washington is trying to say to the entire world, you cannot trade without our approval. If you trade within your own borders with two firms inside your own country and we don't like it, we're going to accuse you of violating international trade policies. This is an international dictatorship. No country on earth is allowed to trade without Washington's approval. That's what the U.S. truly believes. Yeah, amazing. You mentioned Smedley Butler and how he kind of defected from the racket, the gangsterism, and exposed it. You know, there's a, the new head of the Marines is a General Eric Smith. And General Smith said that the U.S. and the U.S. Marines in particular have to get ready for war with China. That was in the last couple of days. He said deterring China is a key focus and that the Marines will strive to make sure a conflict in the Indo-Pacific does not spill over to Japan. So on the pretext of defending Japan, the U.S. Marines are now getting ready for war against China. You know, the, the head of the U.S. Air Force Command overseas, his name was General Michael Minihan. He said a few months ago, quote, my gut tells me we will fight in 2025, meaning with China. I hope I am wrong, but my gut tells me we will fight in 2025. Aim for the head, meaning let's make sure we kill them. Uh, that's the head of the Air Force Overseas Command. Now you have the U.S. Marine, the top U.S. Marine saying the threat is real with China. I mean, you know, when you think about the Marines, you know, the Marine anthem from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. Well, the United States actually invaded Tripoli, Libya in 1805. 
So it's got this long track record of overseas intervention. The Marines are for overseas intervention. It's not about the defense of the country. Fighting the country's battles in the land, air, and sea, as the Marine anthem goes. I looked through, and we did a show last week, Ben, about the U.S. media. And the U.S. media is, is like this kind of headline. And I have 10 of them in front of me. U.S. military is unprepared for war with China, General Warrens. U.S. is not ready to quickly produce and ship weapon systems. Defense industry unprepared for war with China. That's the Hill. I mean, if you go through all of these headlines, you can see that the American media is ba The main story is we're not ready yet. We're not ready yet for the war. There's not like stories like, wait, this is preposterous. This is absurd. This is terrible. We shouldn't have a war with China. We should try to not have a war with China. I mean, the U.S. couldn't defeat the Taliban in Afghanistan. So now the main complaint from the U.S. media, mainstream media, is the U.S. isn't ready to fight China, where one out of every five human beings is, lives in China. The absurdity of it is unbelievable. But the entire propaganda effort of the United States is unbelievable. I mean, if anyone has like sort of an objective ability or an objective faculty, when you listen to what you said, Ben, about the U.S. sanctioning Chinese companies for doing business with China, or the U.S. saying that it has the right to seize oil from Iranian tankers that are going to China because Iran and China have made a, a trade deal. When you see all of the U.S. headlines about the American government's not yet ready for war, let's get ready for war, and you see that this is the Republicans and the Democrats, that there really is a consensus about all of these issues. There's no, like, there's a freedom of press, like right now, breakthrough news in the socialist program, we can interview you and we're not going to be raided by the police, well, we don't think, today or tomorrow and have the studio seized because we still have free press. But the mainstream media that has billions and hundreds of billions of dollars financing its operations, this is a one-note choir on all of these things. And these things don't make sense. They're absurd on their face. And it's such a propaganda machine that it sort of normalizes things that once people actually look at them objectively, they'll think like, wow, that's absurd. But it's normalized in the United States. That's what, in fact, makes this precarious and dangerous and why, you know, we think that these kind of discussions are so important. We have to find a way to go to the people of the United States and sound the alarm that the absurdity, bizarre, pro-imperialist propaganda of the United States isn't just propaganda. It's in preparation for the next war. All of the pro-war propaganda is always preparatory. It's not, it's not just an idea of the mainstream media, they are preparing the population. And obviously, the people of the United States don't want war. The US, if the US sent American troops right now to Ukraine, our demonstrations, the ones we organized by the Answer Coalition, they wouldn't be a few thousand, they'd be a few hundred thousand. That's why the US has to use Ukrainians to do all the fighting and dying and bleeding. The American people don't want war, but the propaganda barrage is real, and it's a difficult task, but a critical task for progressive forces. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, in the case of China, we've seen this military preparation going back years. Again, the Obama administration, even before the Obama administration, the Bush administration and many of the neoconservative forces 
who were driving, you know, Dick Cheney and Bolton, who were driving his foreign policy, they were also anti-China hawks. This is often forgotten. If you go back and you read the documents of the Project for the New American Century, many of these figures who were key State Department officials and Defense Department officials under Bush, their plan, of course, was to wreak havoc all across West Asia, to overthrow all of the independent post-colonial governments, to install puppet regimes. You know, Wesley Clark, the former NATO general, exposed that the goal was to overthrow seven countries in five years, including many of the countries that were destroyed by the U.S., like Iraq, Syria, Libya, Yemen. But also, China was eventually on the list as well. I mean, it was to overthrow all of these independent governments. They, they managed to do it in the Soviet Union, installing this puppet regime in the 1990s under Yeltsin. They tried to do it in China and they failed with the color revolution attempt there. And that was essentially their goal at some point. Now, in terms of the military threats from the United States, we should not forget the United States has a history of actually participating in an invasion of China. In 1900, the so-called Eight Nation Alliance invaded China. The United States was among the countries. It was all of the imperialist countries, the European powers, the United States, and Japan. Of course, Japan has a history of colonizing parts of China, committing genocide in parts of China during World War II. It was the valiant efforts of the Chinese people who defeated Japanese fascism. It was not the United States. It was certainly not the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which even the United States Department of War, which was a more accurate name, that the previous name for the Department of Defense, the Pentagon published this report in 1945, this, the Strategic Bombing Survey, in which they acknowledged that they did not need to actually drop the nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that Japan was going to surrender in 1945 anyway. And it was actually the first act of the Cold War against the Soviet Union. It was an act aimed, an aggressive act aimed at the Soviet Union. And the U.S. was more than willing to sacrifice 200,000 Japanese civilians in the process and many Koreans, as you mentioned. But the point is that it was the valiant sacrifice of the Chinese people. Between 10 and 20 million Chinese died in World War II. And the reason that figure is so that spectrum is so massive between 10 and 20 million is because that history is not that well known. It's not very well documented. The sacrifice of the Chinese people fighting Japanese fascism. So, I mean, if you talk to an average Chinese person and especially an average Chinese official member of the Communist Party of China, they know this history very well. Again, this is very recent. The century of humiliation in which parts of China were dismembered by foreign colonial powers. In 1860, in fact, in Beijing, there's the, uh, the Summer Palace. You can go to see the ruins of the Summer Palace, which were burnt down because France and Britain in 1860 invaded China and burnt down the palace. In 1900, they invaded again. I mean, this is very recent history for China. And since the 1949 revolution, on the 1st of October, Mao said in Beijing, he said, the people of China have stood up. They're not going to be colonized again. So constantly in the Western media, we're led to believe that China is somehow an aggressive power, whereas it's the United States that is surrounding China militarily, just as it has surrounded Russia militarily. I mentioned earlier, this is a very important fact. The U.S. military is spending tens of billions of dollars to put offensive missiles, missile systems on the first island chain. They call it the first island chain because it's the series of first islands off of the coast of mainland China. 
So the U.S. is militarily surrounding China with offensive missiles aimed at the mainland. And the U.S. is working with countries like Japan, South Korea, the Philippines to try to make more and more military bases. In fact, the United States and the Philippines under the new government of Bongbong Marcos, the son of the former dictator, U.S.-backed dictator, the U.S. and the Philippines just signed a military agreement, and the U.S. is going to create four more military bases in the Philippines. And once again, the aim is to encircle China, and the aim is eventually war with China. I would invite people to check out the documentary, which is very prescient, by the incredible reporter John Pilger. He did a documentary nearly a decade ago now called The Coming War with China. It's been clear that this was the goal. And I mentioned I trailed off because I was talking about the Bush administration's threats, but this goes back to the Obama administration as well and the so-called pivot to Asia. And Brian, you've also, you've frequently pointed out that when the U.S. says pivot to Asia, they mean pivot to war in Asia, specifically war on China. The U.S. has been militarizing the Pacific region or what they call the Indo-Pacific region for over a decade now. And it's very clear that their goal is war on China. Now, I don't think that war is inevitable. And I think that everyone in the United States and all around the world should do everything they can to prevent a war from from breaking out because it would be absolutely catastrophic for the people of the Pacific region, but also for the world, because let's not forget the U.S. and China are nuclear powers. And in the Taiwan Strait crisis in the 1950s, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the military commanders in the Pentagon, were considering using nuclear weapons against China. This is well documented. The New York Times reported on it because the whistleblower, unfortunately, who, who recently just passed away of, of you know, the fame of um, the Pentagon Papers, he exposed that the United States was planning on nuking China in the 1950s. And fortunately, Eisenhower agreed not to do that. But I mean, there's a historical precedent of this, and I really hope we do not come back to a situation today where the U.S. is once again considering using nuclear weapons over Taiwan. Yeah, and just for our audience, we've said this before on our show, Ben, we're, we're basically out of time. So I wanted to talk to you about a number of other topics, but it's been a great discussion. We'll come back to it. But in May 1953, the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff did agree unanimously to drop nuclear bombs on China and North Korea. This was documents that came out 30 years later that are written about in the book To Win a Nuclear War by Michio Kaku. They agreed that unless North Korea and China signed the armistice agreement bringing the military conflict to an end in 1953 because the U.S. had been essentially defeated in its efforts to conquer North Korea, they wanted to end the conflict. Unless they came to the table and signed the armistice, they decided unanimously that they were going to start dropping nuclear bombs on China and North Korea. Undoubtedly, China put pressure on the North Korean government at that point to sign the armistice. I think Kim Il-sung and the leadership in North Korea, like the leadership in North Vietnam under Ho Chi Minh, they were prepared to fight as long as it took to reunify the country. But, you know... This is the kind of criminal conduct and arrogance of the war makers in the Pentagon that they actually agreed, if you don't do what we say, we're going to drop nuclear bombs all over China and North Korea. Ben Norton, we're completely out of time. I wanted to talk to you about your upcoming show about the global debt burden on the global south. Real quick, just 
when is that coming out? How can people find it? Yeah, well, I regularly release videos over at Geopolitical Economy Report. So everyone who's watching this should definitely subscribe first to Brian's show and to Breakthrough, support all the amazing work they do. But after that, you should go to Geopolitical Economy Report. And I do a lot of reports there. I'm about to publish a video about the Global South debt crisis and how it's not a product of individual countries and corruption and bad governance. It is a systemic problem with the global financial system. And it's one of the many reasons why countries across the global South are trying to develop a new financial architecture, seeking alternatives to the neo-colonial Bretton Woods institutions like the World Bank and the IMF, seeking alternatives to the US dollar. So those are the kinds of things that I analyze a lot over at my channel, but I always invite people to to check out Breakthrough as well, because you know I, I consider Breakthrough great friends, comrades, fellow travelers. I love the work that you always do, Brian. It's a real pleasure. And you know I've said this before, and I'm not just you know uh, saying it because I'm on your show, but really I think Breakthrough is one of the best media outlets, and your shows, the Socialist Program, is one of my favorite programs. So it's always an honor being here. Thank you so much. That's Ben Norton. Ben, thank you. My pleasure. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.